This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 12th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 211 of Defender Radio. To start out the new year, we're taking a look at some serious news. Canada's failing grade for animal welfare and protection. Late last year, World Animal Protection unveiled their first ever API, or Animal Protection Index, an ingenious way of measuring individual nations' efforts at protecting animals. Canada received a failing grade, lower than some third world countries, causing a media firestorm. Also in late 2014, the International Fund for Animal Welfare announced that Canada was failing to meet its international obligations under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. This was incidentally timed with a study from Canadian scientists showing that our country's efforts to protect already at-risk or endangered species are failing critically. To discuss our first news item, Melissa Matlow of World Animal Protection joined Defender Radio to explain how the API was developed, why Canada received such a low grade, and how we can turn it around. Why don't you tell me a bit about the World Animal Protection International, the organization itself? What's the the background and where did the organization start from? Sure. Um, well, our, uh, we, we're celebrating our 50-year anniversary uh, this year. Uh, we've uh, gone by many different names, the latest being World Animal Protection, but just recently we were known as World Society for the Protection of Animals. And we, our mission is to improve animal welfare globally and connect it to some of the other pressing global issues, whether it be environmental sustainability or public health, we see animal welfare as being very much interconnected to those other missions. And uh, that's why we're trying to put it on the global agenda. And this animal protection index that we're about to talk about uh, is is one tool to do just that. Well, and that's, uh, you did the segue for me. Thank you. Um, mm. And I, I found it very interesting. I got the news release. Um, and it's one of these things where you kind of expect you know, uh, Canada's going to do okay and the U.S. is going to do okay and then you're going to get all of these third world nations that are going to do horribly. But the headlines across Canada were that we got a failing grade in terms of animal welfare on this animal protection index. So if we can start the, the conversation in this regard on how that index is developed, um, you know, what's involved in it and things like that, and then we can get into the the uh, the surprising I'll call it grade that Canada received. Sure. Well, uh, the the Animal Protection Index first of all is is a ranking of 50 countries according to their existing animal welfare policy and legislation, uh, and and that looked at everything from uh, legislation to protect animals from cruelty and also standards to actually improve uh, improve animal welfare. Uh, it looked at uh, all animals from domestic and wild animals in all different settings and uh, from animals raised uh, for food to animals used in research and entertainment. 
Uh, and it's the first time it's ever been done. Uh, so uh, it was a massive undertaking to look at the legislation in 50 countries. We hired uh, the world's largest law firm, DLA Piper, to help us with this, this project. Uh, I believe it was about two years in the making just to set the framework to how to how to evaluate um, and, and score these countries. And you can imagine the difficult balance in trying to be fair and universal, um, but also providing enough specific information about the countries and, 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 you know, a little bit of strategy there in terms of, you know, what can we convince this country to improve upon. Um, so it was, it was quite an undertaking and uh, it looks at um, everything from the recognition of animals as sentient beings in legislation to um, how well animal welfare is embedded into curriculum across the country. Okay, and uh, Canada got the ranking of D. Uh, we were relatively low down on the list, I believe. Um, so what is it that caused Canada, which is uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination a, uh, or by any standard, uh, a first world country, a democratic country, successful country, uh, why did we score so poorly on the API? Um, well, we scored poorly in a lot of areas to get that uh, ranking of D. Uh, I think one of the basic issues is that our our national uh, legal framework to protect animals is uh, under the criminal code and it hasn't changed much since it was first drafted in 1892. So that's quite appalling and in comparison to what other countries have in place. Uh, and uh, for farm animals, uh, we don't really have much legislation to protect animals on the farm. Uh, there have been initiatives to improve welfare of farm animals and to start phasing out some of the worst intensive confinement systems like battery cages and, and uh, sow crates, but those have happened outside legislative um, systems. It's happened with industry and their voluntary measures or with industry oversight. Um, so our farm animal regulations are really for transport and slaughter and those are, are vastly outdated, particularly our animal transport regulations which allow farm animals to be transported for the longest durations in any developed country. Uh, cows can be shipped for more than two days without food, water and rest just to, to give you an example. Uh, in the US that's far less, in Europe it's eight hours unless a very special vehicle is used to transport them the longer distances. Um, and uh, our wildlife legislation is is also um, really just doesn't say much about animal welfare. It's there for conservation purposes and doesn't uh, is silent on on many appallingly cruel practices. So those are just a few issues. Uh, I could go on and on about the the gaps, but I'd I'd say those are the the most important ones. Okay. Um, well, and those are ones that we we all are very aware of. I would think um, <clears throat> whether people are coming to this from the the anti-fur side or they're coming from the general animal welfare side, it is pretty clear that there are major issues in our, our policy and our framework in regard to uh, animal welfare. But what I found really interesting, uh, you've got this terrific interactive map on your website, and I've got it up in front of me right now. And you can look at different countries, you can compare countries, and I, f I find it very curious, you can almost see a bit of a pattern um, in terms, you know, Western Europe seems to have scored in general uh, more highly than most other sections of the world. Um, you know, and that's thanks to countries like Switzerland and Germany um, and the UK. Um, but then 
you turn around and you expect third world countries and developing nations uh, where resources are a, a very serious issue to be among the the absolute lowest. And, and sure enough, um, you know, uh, I believe Egypt uh, got an F uh, and Morocco and Algeria. But then you see Tanzania and Kenya and South Africa get a similar score to Canada. And if you go a little further east in the Southeast Asia, India actually got a higher score than Canada. So why it is is there a, a logical or I should say a simple and logical reason for this this interesting pattern of old western uh old western european nations scoring higher i mean russia failed and i don't think anyone's overly surprised by that um uh, we all did watch james bond movies um but again you you look at india and um uh brazil did half decently <laughs> like it it, uh, Chile did better than us. It it really is. It's it's confusing. So, is there any kind of understanding as to what leads some of these countries, um, and specifically these these sections of countries, to have different or better uh, policy? Gosh, I don't. I don't think I have one answer to sum that up. It's a really good question. Uh, I, I, if you take India, for example, I think there is more cultural recognition of the sentience of animals. Um, certainly, um, some religions uh, really have that embedded in their religion. Um, there's also a history of, of working with organizations like ours in these countries. I mean, we have, we have offices in, in, uh, right now in Kenya, we have an office and we work very closely with the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, we're working very closely with the Ministry of Agriculture in China, believe it or not. So there's more of an acceptance to work with animal welfare experts and NGOs in some of these countries. And in our country, there just is not that same kind of relationship. And in Europe, you'll also see um, there's more interest in working with some of these NGOs for support in enforcing animal cruelty laws um, to a greater extent, including farm animal transport. And in, and in Canada, especially uh, recent years, there's more of a polarization between um, NGOs and the government and more of a just a mistrust and a stereotyping of the groups and, and, and it's just a radically different relationship. So I, I, without much ex expertise on this issue, I'm just going to go with that as my theory and we'll see if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, unfortunately, it's one of those ones we, we kind of do have to wait and see. Although I did like your unintended pun uh, of saying um, that it's radical because that's what the government called us uh, when we were talking about the muskrat fur hat issue with the RCMP earlier this year. Um, and a week earlier than that, they had called ISIS in Iraq uh, radicals. How so, lovely, yeah, to make that comparison. I know, I, I, I quite enjoyed it myself. <laughs> um, now, I would like to look at New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, especially when you look at New Zealand on a map. They're kind of in the ocean... Uh, oceanic comparison of the middle of nowhere um they're they're much more remote to a lot of the world than the rest of the world is but they have one of the highest scores of the entire world when it comes to animal welfare what is it about new zealand um that that 
manages to sort of, again, stretch out this much uh, above the pack when it comes to animal welfare? That's a good question as well. I know that they have um, a lot of animal welfare scientists who have played a lead role in government. For instance, our organization's chief veterinary advisor, uh, David Bayville, uh used to advise the Minister of Agriculture in New Zealand, and he was part of a National Animal Welfare Committee. So I think it's just um, the respect of some of these scientists and their role in advising the government over years. Um, I imagine uh, being surrounded by the ocean there, there is a strong affinity for marine mammals and New Zealand as a tourist attraction for wildlife and um, you know, maybe that has had, a, has had a role to play, but I mean, you're raising really good questions and I think that will probably be like the next project from this report is to see, you know, why we, we definitely see it as a tool to inspire countries to look at other countries, particular ones, ones that they might trade with or have political relationships with and see how they compare and see how they can improve. There's definitely room for improvement in every country. And so this tool is developed to inspire those, those countries to, to, to work on improving, improving their, their ranking and when we develop the next index. But I think another secondary project would be to examine how did, how did this evolve and, and look, let's look at the existing regulations and, and, and what are the factors that, that, had this, you know, that made this happen. In the U.S., for instance, I mean, they did receive an overall similar ranking to us, but you'll see that in some categories, they're, they're, they're miles ahead of us, and I think that's because of more NGOs, uh, animal welfare organizations, working on some of those issues that have made um, that have had success. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to unleash a team of uh, sociologists on this data yeah. and see what they come up with. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating idea. It's one I, I will propose. Um, but I... I guess my, my final one is the response you've received to this information. Uh, as I said when we started, I don't think anyone in our fields would be shocked by this necessarily, at least in terms of Canada not getting a great rating. Um, we deal with the system every day and we see its failings every day, um, from humane societies and shelters to advocacy groups like yours and ours. Um, so... What was the general public like in terms of reaction? And did you hear from any key policymakers or politicians uh, in response to this information? Uh, well, we did see that one uh, member of parliament, uh, Isabel Moran from Quebec, uh, she's an NDP member of parliament. She's now introduced a private member's bill to uh, strengthen the animal cruelty provisions in the criminal code. Uh, so that's um, one uh, impact of, of uh, Canada's ranking already. I know it has is having an impact already in other countries of the world, but specifically in Canada, um, that's the only political response we've received so far. Um, but we also saw uh, the minister, Jerry Ritz's quotes in uh, the Canadian press, article saying that uh, he believed we already had very strong animal welfare laws and that the industry was leading the way here but what um, he failed to mention is those aren't laws those are codes of practice and yes we are making good advancements and, and industry has been a leader um, but the government has a responsibility to play as well and 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 I don't think the federal government has come up to the plate on that uh, so uh, that has been the response from the government we did um, seek feedback from all the 
chief veterinary officers for those 50 countries because we work very closely with the World Animal Health Organization. And so the Canadian chief veterinary officer did respond during that initial consultation. It was an opportunity for him to flag any inaccuracies because this is all based on publicly available information. And sometimes there's policies that we don't know about that aren't so public or easy to find. Um, but he, he didn't have any errors to point out. So we feel it's a very accurate report. Um, but he did uh, want us to want to make clear that there is, uh, under the constitution, there is a division of when provincial governments have authority over animal welfare matters and when the federal government does. So we did actually update the report based on that comment. We thought it was a fair one, um, but that still, you know, doesn't, you know, respond or address the problem that um, the federal government does have a role and clearly their role in federal animal cruelty laws and federal animal transport regulations you know, it shows that they're 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 far behind the rest of the world in those areas, and there's a place for improvement. To learn more about world animal protection or view the interactive API map, visit worldanimalprotection.org. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. Not only is Canada failing to protect species already at risk or endangered, but our leaders are seemingly unable to fulfill basic requirements under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare joined Defender Radio to discuss how our leadership has dropped the ball, why we need to fulfill our international obligations, and what we can do about it. We are going to talk about uh, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species and what's been going on in the last couple of months. Um, So before the Christmas break, uh, you had been uh, posting about this, and IFA has gotten involved in really just sort of a a bit of an unbelievable streak of... um, uh, CITES issues. Uh, could you start out, sort of give us a general understanding of what the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species is? Okay. Um, well, the, the short form of the, the convention is, is known as CITES, so I'll be referring to it as CITES just so that we don't have to say it the whole name every time. But it's an international agreement um, put together among governments. Almost every country in the world is a member. I think there's 180 members. And it, its goal is to protect endangered species from 
commercial trade. Um, so there's different appendices that species are listed on depending on their level of endangerment and the, the effect that commercial trade is thought to have on increasing the endangerment of these species. So it's, it's a, a very, I guess, prominent uh, treaty. It's been around for a long time. Um, and it's, Canada was actually one of the original members of this, this treaty. And it's sort of set up in place to ensure that trade doesn't further endanger species. Well, and it's interesting that Canada was one of the founding members because, as you've reported, um, Canada's really starting to drop the ball. Uh, so why don't we start and talk a bit about, um, the, I, I, well, there's two parts of news to this. Um, let's talk about the, the 76 new species that were added to the two appendices of CITES um, and Canada's lack of movement on that. Mm. So the, the last meeting where all of the parties got together and just decided what new species to add to these appendices or make other changes, they, there were apparently 76 new species that were added. Um, and so, so after this happens, there's a 90-day period um, during which countries are expected to get their own domestic legislation in order so that it is compliant with the decision reached at CITES. So in Canada, that's our wild animal and plant trade regulations. Um, so that, you know, the 90 days passed and Canada has, has made that deadline in the past. Some years it hasn't made that deadline, but it was kind of brought to our attention, you know, sort of in September when the protections for sharks were coming into place, because this is one of the, you know, m one of the major decisions reached that CITES that these species of sharks are going to be protected. And we realized, well, they're not going to be protected in Canada because Canada has filed reservations. And what that means is it's basically opting out of the decisions made at CITES. Now, there could have been a good reason for this, and there it may be a good reason. I mean, countries can use this process if the 90 days is not enough time for them to get their legislation up to date. And, you know, that's that's legitimate. You don't have to put your reservation saying we're not ready yet, and then when you get your legislation up to date, you remove the, the reservations. And it kind of came to our attention that, okay, that, that may be well and fine, but it's been almost two years now since March 2013, and we still have reservations on these species. Um, you know, they keep, they, they're saying that they're working on it, but there's really no excuse for that kind of a delay, um, a few months perhaps. And if, if it really is taking Canada two years, I mean, we're almost up to the next meeting again of CITES. If it's taking us this long to get our legislation in order, something needs to be done to streamline the process so that Canada can fulfill our international obligations to protect endangered species um, at CITES. Well, and I guess what's concerning is when you take that piece of news, um, which with our current government, I don't think a lot of people are really shocked about um but there was a study that came out um very close to the same time as this that showed that 86 percent of species assessed multiple times since 1977 have either stayed at the same risk level or deteriorated over time and and i should point out that these are um species who are listed as endangered at risk special concern and so on uh is is this then something we should be looking at as a systemic problem if we are failing species already on this list so drastically. I, th I think it shows that we are failing endangered species not only in the international arena with regards to trade, but here at home. That study you mentioned was conducted by Canadian scientists and they were looking specifically at Canadian species and our ability to protect species and, and their habitat here in Canada. And it shows that we're, we're not only failing internationally with our obligations, but we're failing to protect endangered species within our own borders. Um, as you say, it shows that species that 
are put on the endangered species list, they don't, they rarely actually recover. And in many cases, they were actually getting worse over time. Um, and an interesting thing about that study was when they looked at what happened to endangered species in the United States, when they were put on the endangered species list, many of them did recover. So this is a problem that is unique to Canada. It either has to do with either our, you know, our implementation of the legislation or, you know, there's there's something going on here. I think you're right. And I don't want to always be banging on Environment Canada and, you know, begging on them. It seems almost too easy to do these days. But really, I think Canadians, we, we value species and we value having a healthy wildlife population. And we really are doing ourselves a great disservice by not protecting them. Well, and I think that's a very fair comment. Uh, Environment Canada is largely made up of people who I personally think care about what they're doing. My issue would be with the leadership of these people. Um, when you start looking sort of across the board in Canada at the political spectrum, when you start looking at the inaction on so many of these vital issues, and then the almost overaction on some of the resource development issues, it really does make you start to wonder where the priorities are, uh, short, short-term monetary gain or long-term survival uh, of our planet. Um, and uh, one of the things you mentioned in your Huffington Post blog um, is the, uh, the state of the polar bear in Canada. So how is that kind of, uh, or what, what is the status of polar bears and how does it maybe play into all of this politicking that's going on with uh, species at risk? Um, well, as you, as you probably know, there still is commercial trade in polar bear skins. They are still commercially hunted in Canada. Canada is the only country that that allows this, but they are hunted for their skins and for commercial purposes, for, for rugs and this sort of thing, and also for, for trophy hunts. Um, there's been some sort of conjecture that, you know, Canada's step back at CITES might have something to do with the fact that even though polar bears are not given full protection at CITES right now, they're not an Appendix 1 listed species. There's there's a lot of you know, scientific supposition that someday they will eventually get there due to their loss of habitat and declining populations. And when, when polar bears are at that most serious level of endangerment, is Canada going to continue to you know, defend our rights to commercially hunt these species to make rugs and trophies and, you know, furniture throws, this sort of stuff. Um, I think that's that's a very legitimate concern. Um, we need to, you know, the, the polar bears do seem to be in a bit of a, a tight spot right now. And we should be taking all of the steps that we can to, to protect them. And I think, personally, I think commercial hunting is one of the one of the things that we can do away with that would give this species a better chance of survival. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the the final question, and uh, as often is the case, perhaps the most important, is what people can do about this. Um, we're coming into an election year, but as of right now, the environment has really not been a big ticket issue as it has in the past outside of the basics uh, of resource development, such as oil and mining. So how can people make this an election issue and how can they get it to the forefront of the consciousness of politicians? Yeah, I think we need to let our politicians know that they, they're not going to continue to get away with this. The discrepancy between what our politicians are saying they're doing for wildlife and endangered species and what they are actually doing for wildlife and endangered species is so far apart right now. And I think we just need to call them out on it and say, look, you know, and this, this CITES one is a very simple example, like get your ducks together, 
get these reservations listed, do your international obligations to protect endangered species. That's an easy one, you know. And uh, we've got an action right now on our website at ifa.org where people can contact their MP and the Minister of the Environment and urge them to, like, this is like the minimum thing that we should be doing to protect endangered species here. That's an easy one. But on top of that, we need to be doing more. We need to be strengthening our endangered species legislation here at home. We need to be looking at why these species aren't recovering, ensuring that their habitats are being adequately protected, and really, we need to let our politicians know that we're not we're not going to sacrifice our wildlife for their development goals. We need to protect wildlife. Um, I think protection and development can go hand in hand in a lot of cases. It just needs to be done reasonably and sensibly. To learn more about the International Fund for Animal Welfare, visit ifaw.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program, as well as our guests for sharing their time and expertise. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.